Well, we have two more weeks left in our series in the book of Exodus before we break off for Christmas, as Elliot said at the beginning. And before we get into things today, I thought it might be good just to be standing back and just to see where we're going. Um, I'm preaching this week and next week, actually, and over these next two Sundays, we're going to cover chapter 5 of Exodus and down to verse 12 of chapter 6 before we take a pause until the new year. And this is how the story develops. This is the kind of split of that overall passage, chapter 5 into 6. In chapter 5 today, we're going to see how the 80-year-old Moses finally gets to confront the mighty Pharaoh for the first time. And it goes very badly with all kinds of unexpected disappointment for Moses. And then next week, we'll see from verse 22 of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 how God wonderfully reassures Moses with strong words of encouragement. So you you get that kind of, that's where we're going this week and next week unexpected disappointment and then we'll hear God's reassurance of Moses next week however two quick things to notice and I I think these two I, I think these two things reveal how slow we can be and these people were to hear God rightly and to listen carefully to what God says to us So, first of all, I just want to point out that what happens here in chapter 5 actually shouldn't have been unexpected at all. Because God had clearly told Moses, actually twice beforehand, and through Moses the people, that Pharaoh would not let the people go at first. And it was almost as if they had selective deafness or selective hearing. They all got very excited. We might even say giddy at the prospect of freedom to come. But they totally misheard God. And the reality that this Pharaoh would be a tough nut to crack. They heard the good news, but they failed to hear the bad news so when things don't go well here in chapter 5 which they don't instead of remembering what God had said to them beforehand Moses is shocked and disappointed and he cries out to God just look down at verse 22 of chapter 5 Moses goes uh, to God and he says Oh, Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. God had clearly told Moses beforehand that this would be hard. And yet, 
when it was hard, Moses is like, I did my bit, God. Why haven't you, why haven't you done yours? But the second thing to notice is that the reassuring words that God then gives to Moses afterwards are also met with weariness and doubt. Just look down into chapter 6. This is a little preview for next week. But God reassures Moses, and then in verse 9, Moses reported everything that God had said to him by way of reassurance to the people. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their cruel bondage. In other words, these people are so tired of suffering that they can't hear God anymore. And they dare not raise their hopes. And this makes Moses hesitate in verse 12 of chapter 6. Moses says to God, Lord, if my own people won't listen to me, what chance do I have with Pharaoh? So the backdrop to this is that God is coming to rescue them from this very slavery. But somehow they fail to hear God's word rightly, both before Moses meets Pharaoh because they're so excited, and then they fail to hear it afterwards because they're too depressed. How fickle we can be. But I want you to see how kind and patient God is with them even when their faith is flaky beforehand and shaky afterwards well let's get into this plot twist unexpected or in brackets not it shouldn't have been unexpected <laughs> disappointment it is impossible to exaggerate what a proper plot twist chapter five is because by the end of chapter four Everything seems to be in place for success. So think about this moment. If, if you were here uh, over these last few weeks, let, let, me, let me recap for you if you weren't. Moses, by now, has lived in Midian, away from Egypt, for 40 years. He has a wife and a growing family there. But at the end of chapter 4, in verse 18, he asks his father-in-law for permission to go back to Egypt on this mission. And he gets his blessing. Jethro says to him, go Moses, I wish you well. And next, Moses has a strange encounter with God at the Premier Inn on the way. And this is a weird, uh, Ben walked us through this last week. This is weird, but it's all because Moses can't go back to Egypt and lead God's covenant people out of Egypt when he himself has failed to circumcise his own sons in Midian to mark them as being part of the same covenant people. Moses can't lead other people and, unless he's right himself. And his wife helps him to do the right thing. And then thirdly, Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron after so many long years of separation. How emotional it must have been in chapter 4, verse 27, at the end there. The two brothers embrace 
And Moses tells his brother Aaron everything. And finally, after Aaron has picked his jaw up off the floor, these two brothers then go together to the leaders of Israel, who don't forget are still in brutal slavery. And Moses and Aaron share the incredible news that God is coming to rescue them. Look at the last verse of chapter 4. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Now, I'd... Add all this up, if you've got your calculator, add all this up. At, this, at the end of chapter 4, Moses is now right with his father-in-law. He's right with God. He's right with his long-lost brother. He's right with the leaders of Israel. God has come to rescue them. At the end of chapter 4, everyone seems confident that this is going to be a breeze. How can it go wrong now? God is with them. Pharaoh will surely crumble while they all celebrate victory. And then we read chapter 5. We finally get to the point where Moses confronts Pharaoh. But instead of glorious freedom... The mighty Pharaoh sticks two fingers up at God, gives them an almighty slap, and the slaves who are hoping for freedom end up getting beaten up even more. Instead of things getting better, they just get much worse. This initial encounter with this mighty king looks like what one writer describes as the ramblings of an old man and his brother before Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron look like amateur negotiators from the local care home. And as they sadly trudge away, the only person pleased in chapter 5 is Pharaoh. Get back to work. Well, this is the surprising twist in chapter 5. What on earth are we meant to learn I I would love to explore with you what this felt like for Moses how do you cope with such crushing disappointment especially when you've done everything you were told to do but you'll need to come back next week to hear about that. We'll call that part two. And we'll think about that next week. The disappointment our God leads us through. But before we get to what it felt like, I want us to see first in part one today, the evil that God rescues us from. And I want to break it up like that deliberately because... I want to suggest to you that this is what God is always doing. Saving his people from something and leading his people through something. 
But for today, let's try and unpack what I mean by the evil God rescues us from. So let's just think, first of all, about a little bit of context here. Um, And first of all, let's introduce the villain. I think one of the main things we're meant to see in this passage is the sheer malice of Pharaoh. And chapter 5 reads like a pantomime where the villain comes on the stage and everyone boos. I'm glad you didn't when Ian was reading that to us. But um, this is where we're introduced for the first time to this defiant king. And the stubbornness that we see here in chapter 5 will only grow in ferocity as the story unfolds. This chapter is a preview of the great struggle that's still to come. We'll get to that after Christmas. So chapter 5 introduces one of the central themes of Exodus. This story is not just about Israel. It's not just about Moses versus Pharaoh. Exodus is a fight between Pharaoh and God. The narrative sets this face-off up like a weigh-in before a boxing match where the two fighters are like in each other's faces, hissing insults at each other. Look at verse 1. Moses goes to Pharaoh and proclaims, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. But then look down at verse 10. The slave drivers go out and say to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. This is what the Lord says. This is what Pharaoh says. This is just the beginning of a massive arm wrestle between a good God and a defiant king. God is saying, let my people go. They're mine. And Pharaoh is saying, no chance. They're mine. That's the face-off. God intends they're good. And Pharaoh here opposes God's good purposes for his people. And the, the other question is, who will these people serve? Will they serve the true God who loves them and wants their freedom? Or the brutal slave master who despises them and uses them? But... I I hope we can see that although Pharaoh looms large, very large here, in all of his monstrous cartoonish evil, even he is not the full focus of the narrative. This story is not about the brutal tyranny of Pharaoh. Rather, it is painting for us in vibrant colour that this almighty, defiant king is no match for the glory and goodness of God. So here's the thing. Part of the reason we get to see Pharaoh do his worst is because God wants to leave his people and us here in no doubt that he alone can rescue his people. If chapter 5 had been easy, that would have been great, but they would never have fully grasped 
the power and the love that God had for them. And actually, this is exactly what God does say to Moses in chapter 6. We'll get to it again next week, another little sneak preview. In chapter 6, verse 1, God says to Moses, Now, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. And then you get down to chapter 6, verse 7, and God says to Moses, then you will know, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Friends, this is why the book of Exodus is so foundational in the Bible. It is as if God is putting on a dramatic show here in which the full force of evil does its worst, almost exhausts itself in order to reveal that only God can overcome it. So even though this chapter is bleak, it's actually preparing us to encounter the God who cares enough to be willing and who is powerful enough to be able to save his people from their greatest threats. I hope this works. These, these things sound good in my head, and then I, then I have doubts about whether they'll make sense to anyone else. I, I hope this works, what we're going to do today. But what I want to do in the time we have left is to... Th I, I think what we've got embedded here in this narrative... Is, is a devastating picture of what evil can be and is really like. But that picture isn't being painted to depress us or overwhelm us. It's being drawn in order to magnify the glory of the God who alone can rescue us from it. You get that? So I'm just going to pick, as we walk through chapter 5, I just want to pick on th three simple aspects of the story to help us see something of the true na nature of evil. And the, the obvious place to begin is with Pharaoh himself. The first picture is personal, and the other two, we'll get to them in a moment, they're, they're a little bit more descriptive. So let's, let's, three devastating pictures of evil. Let's think about Pharaoh, first of all, and the destructive components of evil. There's a sense here in which Pharaoh is being presented as a, as a sort of personification of evil. He is a monstrous example of what we might call rebellious unbelief. And let's hear it from his own mouth. Um, he can speak for himself, chapter 5 and verse 2. Moses and Aaron tell Pharaoh what God says and re let's listen to Pharaoh's response in verse 2 who is the Lord who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go 
help us, I want to suggest that there are three destructive components of Pharaoh's evil to see here. And the first is what I want to call ignorance. Ignorance of God. Who is the Lord? I, I don't know who he is. Never heard of him. Don't know him. Don't care. And this is the root of it all. Pharaoh is totally oblivious, ignorant of God's true identity. And think about this. We, we might say that by definition, an unbeliever, an unbeliever is a person who does not know the Lord. That's a good definition of an unbeliever. They do not know the Lord. But in Pharaoh's case here, his ignorance of God meant that he naturally just put himself in the place of God. Not knowing God, he, he's like, I don't know the Lord. I'm the king around here. This is my palace. Get out. <laughs> Get back to work. Now, I, I know that we're not powerful kings. Uh, uh, you, I mean, you might tell me if you're a spy in hiding or something, but we're not, we're not powerful kings like Pharaoh. But isn't, isn't, it helpful, isn't it helpful for us to see that the seeds of this posture that Pharaoh takes are there within all of us, aren't they? Until we truly see and know God as he is, we won't see things clearly either. And we too assume that we're on the throne of our own lives, the masters of our own destiny. I want to show you something that Jesus said much later on in the Gospels, Gospel of John. Jesus said this on one occasion, this is eternal life. Hear this. This is Jesus' definition of eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What an amazing definition of eternal life that is. True life, according to Jesus, consists of knowing the living God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the defining characteristics of Christianity. It is not primarily following a system of thought or keeping a code of ethics or following rules. First of all, the question is, do you know the Lord? I don't mean, do you know about him? Do you truly know him? But you'll, you'll see that the interesting thing here to notice, secondly, is that Pharaoh's ignorance was not neutral, which is fascinating. He, he doesn't say, hey, guys, guys, coming in. I, I've never heard of your God, but tell me all about him. Let's sit down and have a meal and tell me of this God that I don't know. I'm keen to understand and learn all about it. I don't think Pharaoh's ignorance is what we would call an honest ignorance in that sense. 
it's not so much that he doesn't quite have the right information yet and he just needs someone to educate him. Rather, there seems to be a hardness here within his ignorance that also involves an unwillingness to submit to God's authority. Pharaoh's posture is not just, I don't know God, but I will not obey him. This is not just ignorance. This is fist-shaking. I, I think it can be hard to know which one of those things comes first sometimes. It might be, it could be, that we don't, don't, we, do, we don't obey God because we don't know him. But it can also be true, you know, that we don't know him because deep down we simply don't want to obey him. I think there are some words in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 that can help us that are very pertinent to what we see here in Pharaoh's ignorance and defiance. Just listen to these words. I nearly couldn't fit them all on the screen. But these are in Romans chapter 1. And this is what uh, Paul says in the New Testament. Listen to these words. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How do they do that? Paul says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you catch the idea that people's hearts and minds are in the dark because they suppress what they already know about God? Oh, there's, there's so much in these words. You can, you can read them afterwards. But the assertion here is that all of us deep down do sense something of God, but like Pharaoh, we sit on it and we suppress it because we don't want to obey him. It's not neutral ignorance, but a kind of rebellious ignorance. For Pharaoh, though, there's a third destructive component to his attitude here as well. We'll just touch on this briefly. Not only does Pharaoh shake his fist at the God he claims not to even know, but he also hates anybody and everybody who follows this God and does his best to stop them. His own ignorance of and defiance towards God spills over into hatred of those who do follow God. The reason Pharaoh hates the Israelites is because he hates God. And his violence here borders on being irrational, spitefulness. 
Pharaoh, as we've said, is an extreme example, of course. But he does show something that an unbeliever who doesn't know God and who will not submit to God will also tend to deeply resent those who do worship and obey God. So there's three destructive components of Pharaoh's evil. It's a personal picture. Our other two pictures are more about what evil does to us and our experience of being affected by it. So first of all, let's see, having seen the personal picture in Pharaoh, let's see secondly how unsatisfying and futile evil is. Kings don't respond well to threats, I suppose. And in verse 4, Pharaoh immediately tells them to stop being lazy and get back to work. And he's not messing around. When you look at verse 6, it just says that same day, Pharaoh's not having a committee meeting here. He's not calling all his advisors. That same day, he's so cross, he's so angry, he's so frustrated. He calls in the Egyptian supervisors along with the Israelite foreman and he orders them to keep the production of brick quota the same as where it has been but from now on not to provide the straw that they need to make the bricks. I hope you've not had had experience of bosses like this. Maybe you have. (laughs) You can make the same bricks but I'm not giving you the straw. It's... It's brutal. Apparently they had to place the straw in the wet clay before it's set to strengthen the bricks and stop them shrinking in the hot sun as they dried. So this was very common. In verse 12, we're told that the Israelite slaves scoured the land to gather stubble. Imagine this. It's... It's one thing to go out with one of those great big massive blue Ikea bags and a sharp sickle and the the straw is standing tall before the harvest and you slash it down with your sharp knife and you carry your big Ikea bags of straw. It's one thing to do that. What verse 12 says is that they scoured the land to gather stubble. That means the harvest has already happened. It's another thing to kneel And all that's left is the like two inches of stubble that's sticking up in the hard ground. Brick making was already horrible. But now you're having to kneel down in the sharp stubble and with a little trowel and dig the little stubbly bits. Totally impossible. And when they couldn't meet their quotas the slave drivers mercilessly beat them. This order from Pharaoh means that they now can't win, but they get beaten up if they lose. I I think the Bible carefully records for us this harsh, impossible slavery, at least in part, to give us a brilliant picture of the unsatisfying futile nature of evil and again it's an extreme example 
but it reminds us generally that our own human sinful tendencies will never be able to make us happy or satisfy our hearts. Listen again to these words of Jesus. This is a different time, but look at what Jesus says here. This is John chapter 8. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's Exodus language, isn't it? I, I think we want to believe that we're free. It's hard for us to hear that Jesus tells us that we are in a kind of captivity until Christ comes to set us free. And the evil in its very essence is a kind of slavery which rather than making us healthy and whole will always tend to leave us scraping around on our knees in the stubble. Or consider these words that Paul wrote in the New Testament to his young assistant Titus. This is, this is what Paul said. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. I, I do love the fact that Paul isn't just judging other people when he says that. Did you notice that he included himself in that? At one time, this was us. Paul's saying, this was me. I was like this. We'll come back to Paul at the end. But doesn't this description totally fit with what we saw about Pharaoh? Foolish, disobedient, enslaved, and even malicious. But Paul goes on. He wonderfully goes on, and he'd experienced this. But when the kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He rescued me, Paul is saying. This is what I was like, a slave. And God's kindness changed everything. I wonder whether you feel this kind of language is a bit extreme, but consider some examples. Is not an angry man mastered by his anger? And if something, makes his, if something makes an angry man mad, we say he can't control his temper. <laughs> Rather, it controls him. He's a slave. A lustful man, conquered by his desires. He can't help but give in to his craving for pleasure. He thinks he's in control, but he can't stop. And isn't it true that our own selfishness can dominate us too? We obsess over our own desires and we wallow in self-pity if we don't get what we want. The point is that like these Israelites, we too have a slave driver 
that is the harshest of taskmasters. Sin promises us so much, but is in the end always unsatisfying. It always demands more while giving less and less in return. The more we give in to our sin, the less it satisfies us. With sin, it's always more bricks, less straw. Let me say it like that. What a picture that is of evil. You get that? And lastly, here's a third picture. Maybe there's others. I want to just touch on these Israelite foremen and just think, think with you about the tragic helplessness of evil. So they, these guys end up being whipped for a failure that they actually had no power to fix, which is so unfair, isn't it? And in verse 15 of chapter 5 here, they go to Pharaoh. These are the foremen. They, they, they almost go to Pharaoh, to me, as if there's been a breakdown in communication. They, this can't be right. We, we, they won't give us any straw. They beat us. It just can't be right. So they go to Pharaoh, pleading. And what I want you to notice in verse 15 is how they describe themselves. This is not an accident. Three times they described themselves to Pharaoh as your servants. Just think about that. I, I think we might say they're so used to being in slavery that they almost can't see it anymore. These people, ultimately, this story is all about the fact that these people are God's people and they're meant to be worshipping and serving God as their father and king. But their slavery has so warped their sense of identity in ways they don't even recognize and realize. Their slavery has so blinded them that they can't even remember whose they are anymore. Remember that at the end of chapter 2, these people had cried out to God and we're told that he heard their groaning and was concerned about them. At the end of chapter 4, we saw it earlier, they were bowing down and worshipping God because freedom was coming. But here, they're not running to God. They're running to Pharaoh who doesn't care about them in the least he just repeats his brutal decree and I think verse 19 almost has a bit of comedy value verse 19 says the Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble <laughs> they, they realized that man we're they, they're defeated they thought maybe there was a communication breakdown they go to Pharaoh and he just slaps them and sends them off and they realize it's over. There's no way out. And when they leave Pharaoh, they happen to meet Moses and Aaron. And they vent their spleens on Moses. It's understandable, isn't it, in a way? But none of this is Moses' fault. Moses isn't their enemy. Pharaoh's the tyrant. And haven't they forgotten so quickly 
God's promises to deliver them and the powerful signs that Moses showed them at the end of chapter 4. Isn't it sad to see them screaming insults at Moses? The one whom God has called to be their deliverer. It's so human, isn't it? Their suffering makes them so weary and they lose faith and they turn on Moses. If only they had eyes to see that Moses is not their enemy, but actually their deliverer. Can you see it? Pharaoh was the problem, not the solution. And yet that is where they run. How could their cruel slave master ever be their helper and liberator? The only force that could deliver them from this terrible bondage was the power of God himself. But they're too enslaved to even see it. And Pharaoh almost mocks them. And isn't that, in a way, what our own evil does to us? It mocks us. The tragic helplessness of the Israelites here is painting another picture for us. That, and and th this is what the picture is trying to communicate, that we are not capable of setting ourselves free. We look inside ourselves for answers. And we can't see or appreciate or perceive that we need something or someone from outside of ourselves to help us. The more we try, the more entangled we become. We, we can never get free from sin by sinning some more. We can't get rid of the slave master by asking the slave master to help us. And there comes a point where like these foremen, it dawns on us that we're in real trouble and there's no way out. Well, here are three devastating pictures that paint a picture of evil. Pharaoh encapsulates in a very personal way what rebellious unbelief looks like, not knowing God, disobeying God, and even resenting those who do. But the other two pictures highlight what an unsatisfying and helpless state of slavery evil really is. Well, let's uh, draw to a close. This picture isn't painted to depress us. Let's think about the God who rescues. The great encouragement here is that despite this dark captivity, God is mighty to rescue. Much later on in the book of Exodus, God says to these people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And just before giving, later giving these people the Ten Commandments, God reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land 
of slavery. I want to suggest to you that what the drama of Exodus is teaching us is that nothing is too hard for God. And it's almost as if God brings them to the very end of themselves so that they can see that he alone is full of compassion and full of power and that only he can set them free. I want to ask you, do you know him? Do you know him? If you still doubt this, let me close by going back to Paul, as promised, whose words we read earlier, who totally reminds me of Pharaoh. He was a brute. He, he was an absolute monster of a man. He did not know Christ. He, in fact, he hated Jesus. And as a result, he despised and hated Christians. But when he met Jesus, when he truly got to know the Jesus he had formerly hated, he was totally turned upside down. We heard Pharaoh, Pharaoh's words from his own mouth. Let, let me um, show you what Paul says. This is Paul in his own words. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. That's a great word, isn't it? Abundantly. That's not like a small thing. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I couldn't fit it all on one slide. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive what? Eternal life. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Wow. The story of Exodus is saying, if God can rescue them from this, he can rescue anyone. And Paul's story is saying the same thing. If God could save me, he can save anyone. Here is a God Here is a God who loves sinners so much that he sent his son to die the death that we deserve 
and to rise from the dead so that united to him we would be set free forever from our slavery to sin and death and hell. Our God, this God, is the God who alone rescues us from evil, even our own evil. Do you know him? Do you know him? Let's pray.